Okay, Mark chapter 6. And Father, we pray your blessing on the teaching of your word. Ask Father again, these would not be my words or my take, Father, but the teaching of your Holy Spirit as spoke to our hearts. Uh, Father, if there is anything that I teach tonight that is not what you would have taught, I pray it would fall on deaf ears, but that our ears would only be tuned to hear what you want to speak, that our hearts would tune in on those things and hear on your frequency, Father. Tune our hearts now, Spirit of Christ, in a way only you can, and may we hear from you and be with you in your presence tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the tecton in the Greek? The son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And watch this, he could do, not he wouldn't do, he could do no miracle there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Which to me is, wow. But he couldn't do any big deal. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. You want to amaze Jesus? Don't believe in him. That word wonder there in the Greek means amazed. He was absolutely amazed that they wouldn't believe. It amazed him. For all the evidence, for all the proof, and the amazing things he had already done, it amazed Jesus that they wouldn't believe in him. It still does today. It is amazing to Jesus when people don't believe him. The whole article spread in USA Today, Useless Today, I like to call it, that talks about nuns. I may have mentioned nuns in here before, actually. Not nuns as in the Catholic sense, but nuns, N-O-N-E-S. People to whom you ask the question, what is your faith? And their answer is none. And 46 million Americans are nuns now. They don't believe in anything. It's not just being atheist. It's not being agnostic. Some used to be Christians. But have chosen just not to really believe anything and to answer questions of what do you think is out there with who knows. I don't know. It's those who would choose to see the divine all around us, but not equate the divine with any personality, any name, any specific or particular person. Just kind of freewheeling, live and believe whatever you want. And it amazes the Lord. It just amazes Him. We're going to look at these first opening six six verses more in depth on Sunday. But you know what amazes me about them is that Jesus doesn't return fire at the hometown crowd. They actually say a few things here that are offensive. Again, we'll talk about what those are on Sunday. But Jesus doesn't fire back at them. He certainly could have. He could could have said, if you only knew (laughs) all the twisted things I know about you all. (laughs) And he doesn't do that. What does Jesus do instead? He's amazed at their unbelief. 
And so undeterred, he teaches. He just keeps teaching. He just keeps teaching. Let that be a lesson to us this this evening. We're going to get some equipping from Jesus here, even as he equips his apostles and sends them out. We'll see that. But one of the things to know is that when you feel like you're teaching, when you bring the word to someone, when you share Jesus, and you feel like it's falling on deaf ears, and you're amazed, do what Jesus did. Keep teaching. Keep spreading the word. Keep sowing the seed. Don't stop doing it. You never know when a seed is going to get in the crack of someone's unbelief. You never know when it's going to drop into somebody's heart and one of the nuns suddenly becomes a believer in Jesus. That sounds kind of funny. (laughs) You never know when a nun is going to believe in Jesus. N-O-N-E-S. So keep it up. Keep going. Jesus did. In fact, he was so undeterred, it was time now he determines to expand the mission. So often when we go out and we try something and we don't feel like it worked and we're amazed at the lack of response, we say, well, maybe we're just not supposed to do that right now. Jesus says, no, now it's time to go big. You know, go big or go home. And so he begins to expand by sending out the twelve. Verse 7. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics, because Peter, I know you're going to do that. (laughs) And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Now, this is marvelous teaching here. He's not just sending them along their merry way. He is teaching. The parallel passage to this you can find in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, what what I call when we study Matthew, the first commission of Jesus. Not the great commission, that's in Matthew 28. Matthew 10 is the first commission. Matthew chapter 10 verse 5 says, The twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The first commission. So Paul says in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That the gospel first went out to the people of Israel. God gave them first right of refusal. And of course, there was refusal. But it first went to the Jewish people. But Mark here, unlike Matthew, who focuses on the Jewish people, who is, throughout his gospel, presenting Jesus as the King, as Messiah the King. And he uses all kinds of Hebrew scriptures to back that up. Remember, Mark based probably on the teachings of Peter in Rome, is speaking more to a Gentile audience. So he's not so concerned with the house of Israel as he is with all people. And in this case, we see how Jesus sent out the apostles and gave them authority to continue the mission. I would call this Jesus' prescription for an effective mission. If you would be an evangelist, if you would be a missionary for Christ, whether it's in your home or in another country, or in this country, which, by the way, desperately needs missionaries. If you would be that person, listen to how Jesus does this. He gives several things that are important to note. Number one, partner up. Partner up. He says there in verse 7 that he sent them out in pairs. He didn't send them out on their own, one guy in this direction. He could have covered more ground, you would think. Twelve guys, twelve different directions. Rather, he went six different directions. Sending them off in partnership because the Lord rarely, note this biblically, rarely sends a man out alone. 
Rarely sends a woman off on her own to bring the gospel or to bring teaching or to bring aid to his people. He always, he'll pick a leader, he'll pick a point person, but he always pairs that person up. We see this over and over in the scriptures because God is big on relationships. You know, he realizes something that sometimes we forget. We function best when we are in encouraging relationships. When we try to go on our own, we falter, we fail, we turn around, we go home. It gets too tough. Why do we go home? Because that's where the relationships are. That's where the people are that we know and we can trust and feel safe and secure around. Jesus says, take them with you. Partner up. The Lord God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. So you think we would understand that. You know what happens when you're alone? You end up in a tiny cabin out somewhere in Montana typing letters to the government. That's what aloneness (laughs) tends to do to you. It's not good. Now I was thinking about the apostles. They get sent out, right? They're, They're sent out in pairs. And I was wondering, I wonder if Jesus sent like Matthew with Simon. You know, the tax collector with the zealot. That would be fun. You know, the Republican and the Democrat. Send them together. You know, see what they do. I wonder who got Judas. That'd be a bummer. But you know, something happens when God pairs up people. When two people go out together, no matter how different those two people may seem, when they go out together in the name of the Lord, disparities begin to fade away. That's something about how the church works. The church works that we partner up in the name of Jesus, and as different as we may all be, all those differences start to fade as we focus in on Jesus together. And we begin to discover how much we have in common in Jesus. Take our eyes off Jesus and we start to lose that commonality. But fix your eyes on Jesus and differences fade away. Matthew 18.20, Jesus said, Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there, in their midst. And so in the scriptures we see Moses and Aaron, Joshua and Caleb. We see Peter and John. We see Paul and Silas. Wait a minute. What about Paul and Barnabas? Okay. They paired up, went on a missionary journey. When they came back, they completely parted ways. They had a sharp disagreement. Didn't they part? Is that a good example of a pairing in ministry? And I would say, yeah, it is. It's a great example. Listen, as long as a partnership involves two human beings, there's going to be conflict. There are going to be issues. You know what, what we see happen in Scripture with Paul and Barnabas is, yeah, they didn't continue on the next mission together. They had a sharp disagreement. It doesn't say they hated each other. It doesn't say they never talked again. It doesn't say, you know, Paul began writing letters against Barnabas and Barnabas started going to his denominational board and saying, we can't have fellowship with Paul's people. You don't see that at all. You just see that they disagreed and they went two directions. And guess what happened? The gospel spread. It went two directions. They agreed to disagree. And Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark and off they went. And later, of course, in Paul's life, we see that he hooks back up with Mark, who was kind of a source of the problem in the first place, the same Mark who wrote this gospel. Pairing up, partner up. There is a chance of failure when we do, if we take our eyes off Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus and the relationships will go. If you go it alone, though, there's a far greater chance of discouragement and turning back. So, partner up. Number two, pack light. Pack light. We've been in our house seven years. I am amazed at the junk. 
I'm blown away by the weight of home ownership. And many of you know exactly what I mean. What a pain in the neck. How much more freeing it was. For 15 months, some of you know this, some of you don't. For 15 months while we were building that house, we were transient. My family and I were homeless. We're up in Bellingham, you know, meeting up with Brian in the homeless ministry. We just, you know, I'm kidding. We stayed in this little house over here on the Gilmore's property when uh, Bill and Joan were in Arizona. We stayed there for four months at one time. Then we stayed at a rental house down on West Beach for about six months. We stayed with Jeff and Penelope D'Angelo for a few. I mean, we were just bouncing around everywhere. That was one of the most free times of my life. I didn't have any, you know, because I didn't have to pay the bills. I loved it. <laughs> Pack lights. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus tells the, the apostles to take nothing but a decent pair of tevas, okay? Take a walking stick, and he says, take the clothes on their back, not even an extra pair of underwear, you know? And I just, it does crack me up that he says, do not put on two tunics, because he knows. He knows the apostles well enough to know one of them is going to go, well, man, if I can't pack anything, I might as well wear a double layer of clothes. That way, if one gets dirty, I can swap out. Jesus says, no, don't do that. Pack light. Why? The point is not the packing list. The point is simple trust in the provision of God. As you go, I want you to not have anything that will take your mind off the mission. You just trust God. You trust Him for your food. You trust Him for your clothing. You trust Him for your bed at night. Remember, this is the same God who provided for the people of Israel some three million strong wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. God may, Have you ever thought about what kind of water needs three million people would have every day? You ever thought about the food needs, the requirements? Well, there was the manna. You ever thought about just the clothing? Bible tells us their shoes, their sandals didn't wear out for 40 years. Absolutely amazing miracles going on for those 40 years. And why did God do it? To teach the people to trust in His provision. That's what Sukkot is about. You know, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the provision of God. Build the tabernacles, go live in it for a week, and remember how I provided for you. Remember how I am providing for you. Remember how I will provide for you. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's what Jesus, I believe, is doing with the apostles here. Don't worry about anything but the mission. Let that be first and foremost in your mind. Mark, or Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus said, Don't worry saying what we will eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing. And this is not just the mission. This is to all of us for all times. He says, The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Seek first the kingdom and my IRA and all these things will be added to me as well. Seek first the kingdom and my many homes and all these things. Now, I'm not... Please, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you shouldn't have retirement. I'm not saying you shouldn't be a good steward of what God has given you. I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in in homes or in real estate or in in, in, uh, stocks or whatever. What I'm saying is, be careful because the more we have, the harder it is to trust God for provision. The more we begin to trust ourselves to meet our needs. I got it covered. And so we don't pray. I've got it taken care of, and so we're not going to the Lord. Pack light, he says. And verse 10 where he says, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. What's the point of that? Don't move around. 
Don't go looking for the four or five star hotel. If you land at someone's home and they and they give you shelter and you're staying there and you're like, yeah, but that's a nicer home over there. And that guy said I could sleep there. <laughs> that guy's got, you know, dish network and I could just stay where you land. Don't go looking, don't go thinking about where you are living. Focus on the mission, not the accommodations. What matters most to you today? It's convicting for me. Is it the house I occupy or the hearts I evangelize? What matters more? Taking care of my stuff or taking care of God's business? Jesus already told us, in my Father's house are what? Many rooms. Many, big, big house. Lots and lots of rooms. A big, big yard. Where we can play football. Right, you've heard the song. I love it. God's got a big house. And Jesus said, if it, weren't, if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you that. Why would I tell you that? If it weren't true, I go to prepare a place for you. But he adds this interesting caveat as he's telling him to you know, partner up, pack light. He says in verse 11, and any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Now the Jews would be familiar with this. Because this is what a Jewish man or woman would do when they left a Gentile town. This was typical behavior. They would ceremonially, as it were, take the soles, take their shoes off and shake the dust and then put their shoes on and walk away. Now it wasn't an offensive thing. It was, it was their way of saying, I'm not taking anything from this town. I'm not even taking the dust with me from this town. Had to do business here. I did my business. I've left. I'm not taking anything with me. That was the mentality. And it's a great word for dealing with rejection, which happens on the mission. Guaranteed. It happens on the mission. The door will be slammed in your face. The person will stomp off. As we saw in the Jews for Jesus video on Sunday morning, some people will spit at you. Some people will hurt you. Some people will take offense at you. How do you deal with that? How do you handle rejection? Well, number three on Jesus' sending list, partner up, pack light, and number three, pitch rejection. Shake it off, man. Don't carry it with you. If you bring the good news of the gospel to someone and they reject you, Jesus says, don't let that stuff stick to your feet. Don't let it stick to you. Shake it off. What's done is done. No one... Listen, no one knows the sting of rejection better than Jesus. Right? Jesus, who Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected of men. Jesus, who John tells us in John 1.11, came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Tells us before that He came to the world, and the world didn't recognize Him. Well, that's bad enough, but He comes to His own people, and they wouldn't receive Him. They didn't want to have anything to do with Him. And if Jesus was rejected, don't you know, brothers and sisters, dear saints, you're going to be rejected too. You're following the rejected one. What do you think is going to happen? Shake it off. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before you. It's going to happen. So be prepared as you go on mission to pitch rejection. In fact, we see Paul and Barnabas doing this exact thing, obviously at the lead of Jesus. Acts 13, verse 50 says, The Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of their city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. 
but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. Against them. Jesus said that. He said, do this as a testimony against them. So there are two things going on here. One is just shake off the rejection. Don't let it stick to you. Let it go. Walk away. But the other thing is to shake the dust off your feet against the person who's rejecting you. What does that mean? I'm not talking about throwing dust in their face. (laughs) We need to understand there's one thing that will bring the rejection of the Lord faster than anything else. And that is the rejection of His grace. You reject His grace... You reject His mercy. You reject His forgiveness. Well, in the King James Version of Mark chapter 6, verse 11, and it's not here in the NASB, the King James adds this line, Verily I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The city that rejects you, he says to his apostles. Now, now, side note, why is it in the King James Version but it's not in the New American Standard Bible? Well, the earliest manuscripts of Mark's Gospel don't have that line. Oh no, so the King James added it? Well, sort of. King James added it because that same exact sentence shows up in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. So it's in Scripture. It's in Matthew's Gospel. It just didn't show up in Mark's Gospel until later on. So they think perhaps a scribe took that same verse and just stuck it there as well. No one's adding to Scripture. Because it's already in Scripture. But the bottom line here is to reject grace, is to reject our only hope. To say, I'm a nun. I don't believe in anything. There are, this uh, Useless Today article was talking about Christians who have become nun, which amazes me. You know, to know Jesus and then to walk away and say, I just don't really believe anything anymore. It tells me the person never really met Jesus. Never really knew grace. How can you know grace and walk away from it? So, partner up, pack light, pitch rejection, and number four, preach the word. Preach the word. This is not a message to church planters and to preachers and to pastors and to shepherds. This is a message to every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Preach the word. Verse 12, And they went out and preached... That men should repent. That is just turn around. Turn to God. And they were casting out many demons. Okay, So they were cleaning house, as Jesus had cleaned house. And they were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And know this, they didn't spend hour upon hour upon hour in seminars learning how to do it. (laughs) They were just with Jesus. So they just did what they saw Jesus do. They went out. They knew how to cast out a demon. Why? Because they saw Jesus do it. They knew how to preach the gospel because they heard Jesus do it. They knew how to say repent with the right tonality and the right voice because they had heard Jesus do it. They knew how to heal because they had watched Jesus heal. Now He empowered them to do all these things, but they knew because they had been with Jesus and if we're with Jesus, we will know how to respond in the world. We will know how to take the gospel. If you're not with Jesus, you're not going to know what to do. Bless each and every one of you for being here right now with Jesus. Not with Pastor Rick. With Jesus. Because the more time you spend with Jesus, and not just here on Wednesday nights, as we've been talking about, up in the morning, in bed at night, throughout the day, the more time we're with Jesus, watching Him, considering Him, studying Him, thinking about Him, the more we're going to know exactly what He would do in any given situation. And He sends them out to preach the Word. 
So they go. They go with His authority and with His Word. 2 Timothy chapter 4. You all have heard this. In fact, it's a, it's a passage we've, we've looked at many times. Let me read it again. Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and by His kingdom. This is a big deal, gang. Solemnly I charge you, Timothy, preach the Word. This is in all of Paul's writings the most solemn command he gives. Preach the Word. Why so solemn? Because Paul goes on and says this. And I just saw this for the first time today. Hadn't thought about this before. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, I've always seen that as a last day's prophecy, and it is. Paul says, the time will come. The days are before us when people will stop wanting to hear the word. Thing is, while I believe it's an end times prophecy, we also see it happen down through history. Nation after nation after nation not wanting to hear the word. Some nations beginning with that desire. Some nations built upon that faith but coming to the point of the time will come when that nation will not want to hear sound doctrine any longer. But more than historical or, or you know, eschatological, more than national or even local, consider it personally. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In every individual person's life, the time might come, the potential is there for the time to come, when every individual says, I don't really want to hear sound doctrine right now. I'm kind of tired of the word. Man, we show up on Sunday morning and Rick goes like an hour. Let me come Wednesday night and he went like an hour and 15. I mean, unbelievable. I'm just, I don't really need the, I'm in a season right now where I don't want the word. I just want to hang out with Jesus. And I'm like, really? Why would you deny one of the greatest ways of hanging out with Jesus? Not the only way. Prayer. You know, being in His presence in worship. But the Word of God. To deny that. And the time will come, Paul says, when individuals will say, I don't, I don't want it anymore. It, it could be parents. It could be little children. I've watched it happen with every one of my kids. The time has come when they say, I don't want to go to church. Oh, you're quoting me another Bible verse, Dad? I get the look, you know. <laughs> Don't try and pastor me, Dad, you know. I'm like, I am your pastor. The time will come. Moms, dads. So how do you deal with that? You teach the Word now. You preach the Word now. Before that, you don't hope to catch up later. What do you do with the new believer? Someone who comes to faith in Jesus, they're born again. Guess what? The time will come when all that excitement fades away. Then what? And so Paul is so solemn with Timothy, he says, preach the word now. Preach the word before the myths, before the sensations, before the ear tickling and the desire starts to lead people away. Get it embedded. Get it implanted. Get the word in. And the deeper it takes root, and that's why the Bible says, train them up in the way they shall go, children. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Why? Because they got rooted in the Word before 
that time came. The time will come. Preach the word. Sunday morning I was talking with a sister who's an ex-Jehovah's Witness. And she said her whole family has rejected her. She cannot go home. She cannot have, her family has nothing to do with her because she walked away from the Jehovah's Witness. She said, I love to be here because she said, I know the Bible will be open. It's not a statement of the Bridge Fellowship. It's a statement of where she came from after a lifetime of ear tickling and cultish lies. Rick, that's a little harsh. It's the truth. Mm-hmm. And now she just wants to hear the word. Just wants to hear the word. And I think sometimes about Christians who are in this fellowship even, who are used to the word, who get the word all the time, who never went through those dry seasons, those hungering seasons of really never having it available or being taught lies. And they take it for granted. Don't do that. I know I'm preaching to the choir. It's Wednesday night. But the seed of the word needs to get implanted before the desires of the flesh take root. And if the roots are deep, the word... We'll be all right. Preach the word. That's the fourth one. Now, while the gospel is going out into the communities, the twelve in in pairs, so six directions, and of course Jesus doesn't stop his ministry. He doesn't go on vacation while the apostles are out. He is still doing his work. He is alone, and yet he's not alone because he and the Father are one. He's together with the Father. The Father is with Jesus. He is constant in in his communion with, with the Lord. But Jesus is still doing his ministry. The apostles are out. And as the gospel goes out, the forerunner, John the Baptist, gets pulled in, taken into custody, verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, that is, heard that the gospel was going out. For his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he's Elijah, talking about Jesus. Others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, (laughs) he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound and imprisoned on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. See, John called a sleaze a sleaze. He called it as he saw it, right? <laughs> Herodias, his now wife, who is also his, was his brother's wife, but he took her from him for his own wife. By the way, she was also his niece. Absolutely true. Herodias had a grudge against him, against John the Baptist, and wanted him put to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and so Herod, he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod would go and just listen to John, in prison. Bored some afternoon, you turn to the John the Baptist channel. You go down there, you find John, talk to me, I just want to hear your weird stuff. And Herod was fascinated by John. And I think even the indication is he liked John. But he had to do something because John's out there bad-mouthing Herod and bad-mouthing Herodias and you know, if Herodias ain't happy, ain't nobody happy and so he's trying to cover his tracks. Herod. This is not Herod the Great, by the way, and you might make a note of that. This is Herod Antipas who is one of three sons of Herod the Great and Herod Antipas is a bona fide dirtbag. 
<laughs> Among his other sleazy behaviors, the adulterous relationship with his brother's wife is, you know, another sleaze who is also his niece. And what's interesting here is that Mark calls him King Herod in verse 14. King Herod was never a king. Antipas, Herod Antipas was never... Now, Herod the Great was king, made king by Rome, bore the title of king over Judea. Herod the Great was the one, the great architect. He built Masada and he built you know, Herodias and he built... Or, or, um, Herodotus? I'm, it's named after him. Several places. Herodian, thank you. And he built all this stuff. That's Herod the Great. Well, his son Herod Antipas wanted to be called king. And Caesar Augustus said, no. No, you may not have the title. (laughs) Well, Herodias, his social climbing niece wife, she nagged him. She stayed on his back. You've got to get the title of king. It won't look good for me to be married to a non-king. So he kept pushing and pushing and pushing against Augustus. You know what Augustus finally did? He finally cut him off. He dismissed Herod and he branded him a traitor. That's how Herod ended up. So why does Mark call him a king? I think Mark's readers would have gotten a kick out of the title. He calls him a king and it's tongue-in-cheek because he was not a king. He thought of himself that way. You know, he was pompous and arrogant and thought he was a king. But Mark's readers, and you and I know, there's only one king. There's really only one true king. And Herod wasn't him. Verse 21 tells us a strategic day came... When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lord's military commanders and the leading men of the Galilee. Now that's interesting. A strategic day. See, Herod liked John, but Herodias hated John. And so, a strategic day. Herodias had been looking for her chance. Looking for her opportunity to have John executed. And she couldn't do it. She couldn't find the way because her own husband was protecting this guy. And then the strategic day came. The the Greek word there is eukairos. And eukairos literally means a convenient day. Or an opportune day. Or a strategic day. So a strategic day came. And when the daughter, verse 22, of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And verse 23, he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. It was an opportune moment. A strategic day. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. He went and had John beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. I wonder how that little girl grew up. And when his disciples heard about this, they came and they took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Now listen, Herod was not only a sleaze, he was a buffoon. And I'm saying this in the context of the passage. He enjoyed John's teaching. He liked listening to the prophet. Again, I believe he even liked John. 
So why does he follow through with this brutal request of having John beheaded and his head brought in on a platter? Take this as a cautionary tale, my friends. A cautionary tale. The two big issues in Herod's life at this moment were revelry and reputation. Revelry and reputation were far more important to Herod. Revelry, he's partying here. I think he's got to be a little tipsy. Doesn't say that, but he's in the company of all these important you know, uh, celebrities and officials, important people. He's got to be loosened up by wine, woman, and song. Why do you think he's loosened up? Because he offers her half his kingdom. Come on. I mean, what an idiot. Really? Up to half my kingdom. Cheers. You know, he's got to be a little on the tipsy side. He offers her this. He's reveling in this moment. And he's worried about his reputation, the Judean elite. You know, he's got to make sure that they understand he will do what he says he's going to do. He's got to act like a king. And suddenly it became an opportune time. Luke chapter 4 verse 13 tells us that when the devil was finished tempting Jesus, he left him until an opportune time. Now you know and I know Jesus never gave it to him. Judas would give it to him on the night of Jesus' betrayal. But Jesus never gave the devil an opportune time. Never opened the door, even a crack, for the devil to get in. Paul says, Ephesians 4.27, Do not give the devil an opportunity. Which is exactly what Herod did. Simply by having the dance. By having the revelry. By having the party going on, he opened the door a crack for an opportune time, for a strategy to be employed. And I believe the devil, not Herodias, is the one who took out John the Baptist. He used Herodias, and he sought an opportune time. And what do you think the death of John the Baptist would do to Jesus? Talk about a shot across the bow, a warning shot. From the devil to Jesus, I'm gunning for you. I just took out your forerunner. I can do the same to you. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. His first cousin. So this would have an impact on our Savior. This would touch Jesus personally. It was an opportune time. Listen, I really am not a killjoy. For those of you who who know me well, know I like to have fun. I love to laugh. I love jovial things. I love loud music. I love to be with people. I love games and, and all kinds of fun. I love fellowship. But the reason why in the last year or two I've come down really hard on drinking and on gambling, on the casinos, on local taverns, on, on places where I know, amazingly, a lot of Christians like to go on weekends and whatnot, is because, and we've got to understand this, these situations are very often strategic. We go thinking we're going to have fun. The devil's got a different plan altogether. Do not forget... He is running a strategy. And his strategy is in any way possible to undermine the effectiveness of the kingdom. And when I head out and give him an opportune moment in my revelry, or in my worry about my reputation, remember this, Satan is always looking for an opportunity to lop off the head of your faith. And he will do it if given the chance. Don't give it to him. Don't give him the opportunity. There are many places where we just ought to say, I'm just not going there. 
You know, I'm not saying you wouldn't have fun when you're there. In fact, I don't believe I once said that. You know, certain places aren't fun. Well, the casinos look fun. Don't they? They're all lit up, pretty, and everything. But they're corrupt. Enough on that. What was the result of all this on Herod himself? Look back at verse 16. When Herod heard of it, that is the gospel going out, Jesus' boys going out, Jesus, his message is gaining ground, people following, people are amazed, all the miracles, everything he's doing. When Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. It's John back from the dead. I would call this story the haunting of Herod. Because that's what's going on here. He is is being haunted here, not by the ghost of John the Baptist, but by his own sin. His own sin found him out. His own sin is now going after him. His own guilt is haunting him, and that's what sin does. And we all know this. It haunts us. It dogs us. It keeps coming around after us, which is why I am so thankful for the blood of Jesus. I am so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses me from all that sin. And you know what? There is so much in my past. Don't listen to this, Corey. There is so much in my past (laughs) that is dark and sinful. And I deal with it one way and one way only. The blood of Jesus washes that clean. It's gone. And it does not haunt me today because of His forgiveness, His grace, His blood that washes me clean. In this is love, 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The utter washing of our sins, and Herod didn't have it. Herod didn't believe in Jesus, he didn't follow after Jesus, so he didn't have the blood of Jesus, the covering, or even the offer of that possibility. Herod didn't have that, and so he wallowed in the haunting of his murder of John the Baptist, among, I'm sure, many other things. And by the way, Herod's sins ate him up. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. We, um, we had an old hemlock tree. Huge hemlock tree just to the left of our house. It's outside our bedroom windows. One of my favorite trees on the property. Big old thing. And it started looking a little peaked. You know, this, this tree's like 100, 150 feet high. I mean, it's way up there. It's been there a long, long time. And so uh, we had Dave and Denise Walton out, and they were looking at the tree. And, and Dave goes, well, let me take a look at it. I said, does that look a little sick to you? And so he, he gets down to the tree, and he starts digging around the bottom. And he pulled off some bark on the bottom, and it was gross. Tons of bugs went... <laughs> And just rolled out underneath. And Dave goes, yeah, this tree's going to fall. He said, when you you get a tree that's this rotten in its core, it's eventually going to fall. It's getting chewed up right now by the bugs. This is the beginning of the summer. And he goes, keep an eye on it and let us know if if you want us to cut it down. I'm like, keep an eye on it? What, until it falls on my bedroom? (laughs) Cut the sucker down. And so they came out and they cut it down. And interesting This reminds me a bit of Herod because he was rotten to the core. You know how he died? Acts 12.23 tells us he was eaten by worms. I looked at so many commentaries trying to see what exactly does that mean. And you know what I came up with? It means he was eaten by worms. That's all. I, I don't know. I don't know how that looks or how it exactly happened, but it says that he entertained the praise of the people from Tyre and Sidon, and as those people began saying, his words are the words of God, and he he was saying, yes it is, it says he was eaten by worms. 